Welcome to the Death Dialogues Project Podcast. I'm your host, Becky Odd Jennison, and I can guarantee you that you will be a better human for listening to these stories. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for being with us today for this beautiful episode that touched my heart so deeply. On March 19th, 2016, Miriam's older brother and only sibling passed away suddenly from an overdose. She and her mother, both devastated from a loss they had spent a lifetime trying to avoid, were left to figure out what life looked like without him. One year later, Miriam's mother, racked with grief, passed away from cancer after a steep decline and an all-too-brief diagnosis. Now the only surviving member of her tiny family unit, Miriam has been openly traveling through her grief in the hopes of helping even one person know that they are not alone in the darkness and depth of their experience. Using her work in the fitness and wellness community, combined with being an accomplished performer and choreographer, she has allowed her life-altering experience and perspectives to be raw within her work as a way of helping to foster a healing balance between loss and the joys that still infuse life. Her hope is to create healing in herself and to facilitate others to share their stories and their journey towards healing. In this episode, she explores the differences between foreseen and unforeseen loss, the devastation left behind from addiction, and the horrific pitfalls of the American healthcare system. In 2019, inspired by letters she used to exchange with her family, Miriam went on to create Your Faithful Reader, an experiential theater performance. Miriam lives in Brooklyn with her much-loved cats and plants and believes her family is in everything she does, and they live on everywhere there is light, energy, and joy in the world, and they certainly live within the words in this beautiful episode you will hear today. And you can go to the program notes to find out where you can connect with Miriam. Thanks for being here. Hello, Miriam. I am so happy that you're with us today. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Thank you so much for connecting and you know, I have to say that I my heart just filled when I read your letter. And this is kind of some of the um, confusing bits and a little messed up feeling bits about grief and loss because, you know, I don't wish anybody to have to go through deep loss. But I'll tell you, when I read that your brother had died and then a year later your mother had died, um, I felt like there's somebody that I will really understand and that's somebody that can understand me. So plus the creative work you do. So I'm not wanting to bang on about that. I would like love to again, welcome you and start at the very beginning of your stories of loss. If you would just share that with us and then we'll just chat about whatever comes up, if that's okay for you. Yeah, that sounds good. Thank you for including me in your work. Um, I think it's really important work. And, um, you know, I, 
I've always aimed to be pretty open about my story from day one because I think, you know, as a society, we have a lot of taboos about all sorts of things. And there's just one thing that everyone will ultimately experience, and that is grief. Um, we cannot avoid it. We cannot hide from it. We can shove it down, but it will eventually come for us all. Um, so I think uh, my experience is very, from the very first moments of it to uh, the present, have showed a lot of um, what is, you know, have reflected a lot about what it is to grieve in a culture that doesn't always honor grief as a really uh, a, a whole part of your life, that it's something that happens to you wholly. Um, so I guess I can start with my story, and I will try to stay linear if I can. Um, but as you know, grief uh, in itself is not linear. So uh, I will hope to not get too off <laughs> track here. Um, but my Sorry. brother, <laughs> my brother, uh, my older brother, my only and older brother, um, passed away on March 9th of 2016. And um, he passed away from an overdose. And um, people... Overdose is funny because you can't um, always tell if overdose is intentional or accidental. So there's things that you have to pack, kind of unpack in the immediacy of overdose. And of course, we didn't find out in the very first moments that it was overdose. Although my, as soon as I found out the, the phone call I received, it was my gut instinct looking back um and then almost to a almost to the day um a year later my mother passed away uh, my mom died of very sudden uh stage four ovarian cancer um at least this is what it will say on the paperwork for her um, I'm certain uh, that my mother died of a broken heart. I have no doubt about that um, at all. Um, so those are very different losses. Uh, one was sudden and, and in arguably unexpected because he was there one day and he was gone the next. Um, and one was slightly more known. Uh, she passed away within four weeks of being admitted to the hospital. Um, however, you know, I would also make it the argument that the reverse is true. Um, when you're living with someone who is battling addiction, um, or you living and loving and growing up with someone, if you have somebody close to you that's battling addiction, that is unfortunately at times the phone call you were waiting for. Um, for much of your life. <clears throat> so in, in some ways, it was the lesser, the lesser surprise. Mm -hmm. I can say that only loosely because, of course, it's full of shock and 
and you're never ready for loss, no matter if you're looking at it as it happens or not. Um, and uh, my mother, um, she, she, uh, she, you know, she had a year of trying to survive the loss of her son. And, you know, most, I think, I am not a parent, but I know most parents I know will tell you they're not supposed to outlive their children. She had always said that in conversations about dealing uh, uh, with addiction and dealing with concern for my brother over the course of our lives. So I knew we were having an uphill battle to, you know, keep her on the planet um, during that year. And I was mostly concerned for her emotional and her emotional health and her mental well-being, um, trying to navigate my own loss and navigate her loss, which were very different. Um, and then she just started to, um, you know, her body just started to kind of break down and she was really uh, unwell for a while. And I was very concerned and I was, uh, but she, she lived in Wisconsin at the time. And I was going back and forth between New York and Wisconsin, and I was trying very hard to uh, encourage her and support her to get help, which I thought uh, at first was more like therapy. And um, she had a lot of feelings about it. My mom was a very funny lady. She had a lot of feelings about it. Um, and... But and her physical health was clearly on the decline. And so I pushed and I pushed and I pushed. And she was quite mad at me often um, because of it. But I finally, um, I finally, well, I kind of finally was left with no option. I got her, We I kind of grew up with homeopathic medicine in my home. And so um, she was... Uh, really resistant to getting any type of medical attention. And I finally kind of convinced her uh, we would go to a, a homeopath who had an internist there. And the whole thing, they really got me in one day. And when we were there, they were basically like, we have a both legal and, you know, uh, like moral op uh, responsibility to tell you you need to go to the emergency room right now. And um, my mom was kind of like, thank you for your opinion. I'd like to go home. And I, I was like, we got to go. Like, we have to go to the hospital. And she was like, I really, I don't want to go. And I was trying my best to respect her wishes. But, you know, I also had to um, live with what the consequences were. And I actually used something. Uh, leave it to a parent to teach you something to use against them. So um, my mom, once when we were dealing um, with a crisis moment of my brother's addiction, and I was um, at the time kind of in a moment of like him needing tough love, she said to me, well, I understand that, but I still have to be able to live with myself. Like, it's not just that I want him to live and be okay and be in safe space. Like, I also have to live with myself. And I remember her saying that to me in this moment. And I was like, all right, I'm going to bring you home today. And tomorrow we're going to get up and we're going to go to the hospital. 
because I have to live with myself. Mm-hmm. And she, she agreed. And I was, her best friend was with me. We were staying in her best friend's home at that moment. Um, and she went to sleep and I, I've never been more afraid that someone was not going to make it through the night. We were both terrified, her friend and I. And I was I mean, counting down the seconds till it would be like a decent time to wake her up, which came Can around. Can I ask a quick question about that? Yes, of course. What, what did the homeopath and the internist see that alarmed them so much to say, go to the emergency room right now? Uh, and, yeah. then, and then I'm, I'm, following that because you're worried she's not going to make it through the night. So what kind of symptoms would she have at that point? So she was uh, really physically like deteriorating. So she had lost a lot of weight, um, which, you know, at first seemed like symptomatic of grief. Like I had as well. Um, But she, and really was struggling to maintain any appetite, which, you know, I understood and had compassion for but she had a really, she was really distended in her stomach and she mm. um, had been for quite some time. And she had a history of um, fibroids, um, which she had always kind of dealt with. My mom had a lot of medical training in her background. Um, so she had always kind of dealt with and um, never had invested in like a removal surgery because she was kind of like, well, that in itself is very invasive. And it's in this, she felt that they weren't um, threatening. And so that they were merely just, it would be aesthetic. She was more, you know, the surgery would be mostly revolve around, you know, slimming that portion of her body down. And so it was merely an aesthetic surgery, which, you know, when I was a teenager, uh, that felt like a, you know, she's my mom, she had a lot of medical training. And I that felt like a understandable conclusion to make. Um, as a adult now, I understand the risks that were probably being taken there. Um, but that really didn't come to light to me until much later in both of our lives. Um, and so they, you know, just the doctor actually at the homeopath was really um, interesting. Like I was in the, in the room with her when they, we first met and they kind of do some intake and they're talking about what's happened. And my mom was sharing her story and having lost her son and clearly like symptomatic, we all have physiological effects from loss. And uh, he was her like depression and her grief was really palpable. And this was, um, my brother passed away in March, and this was in, ooh, at this point, this was um, December of 2017. Um, But I had been pushing throughout the whole entire fall. And um, so here we are in this kind of crisis moment, and the doctor is giving her a really hard time. And, you know, I'm the one who brought her there and wanted her there and wanted to care for her and wanted to do the right thing by her health so that she stay on the planet. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and the doctor really, uh, gave her a moment of tough love and was kind of rough to the point. I felt very protective of her because he 
was kind of like, I'm a parent, you still have a child here, and your child is clearly suffering, and you refuse to get attention for things that are clearly wrong with your health. Like, what message does that send? And I, of course, got quite defensive because I didn't want somebody, like, harassing my mom. I just wanted her to be better. Um, And he came from a right place, and he, you know, ultimately, I believe he did the right thing. And she did feel very respectful of his opinion and his time and his energy. And she was very emotional. Um, But it was the internist and the homeopath were both like, yeah, you have to go to the emergency room now. Um, They felt that the basic, the fluid and the buildup in her like uh, body cavity was so profound that it was like imminently dangerous. Mm. So. She slept through the night and agreed to go to the emergency room the next morning. And if I say the drive from the homeopath to my mother's best friend's house that night, that evening, afternoon, was like the longest drive I've ever made in my life. Uh, And, you know, maybe they were 30 minutes apart, but hours in my brain I must have crawled there because I believed in my heart I needed to turn around and go to the emergency room and the battle to respect her wishes versus what I thought would save her Mm -hmm. um, was a really difficult road to actually drive down um and then the next morning, she very amicably got up, and we went into the emergency room, and we never left. And she passed mm. away exactly four weeks later. And we had some ups and downs and moments of um, thinking um, we were going to leave and mm-hmm. me thinking of the ways I was going to have to reinvent my life to come and take care of her and how was I going to move my life in New York to be there to care for her and I just started checking off all the boxes um this is also a very interesting uh moment to take a potential segue into how broken our healthcare system is Mm -hmm. (laughs) um because my mom was uninsured And so having to deal with the medical system at end-of-life care when choices you make could um, potentially buy you more time is really, really, it's a difficult road to walk if you have the best insurance. Um, It's an extra challenging road to walk if you... Uh, are called from the hospital one day uh, basically like being evicted from care because they can't find any insurance for you. Mm. So uh, I believe kind of one of the last, like the end of the hook, line, and sinker of uh, my mom passing in the hospital was we were having, it was probably two and a half weeks into our stay. Um, I had been in Wisconsin for a long time then. I had like basically left my work and was like, I'm not entirely sure when I'm coming back. Um, 
And we were on an upswing. It seemed like she was actually going to get discharged. We were going to look for, you know, kind of trying to figure out the aftercare it was becoming quite um, uh, an exhausting feat of trying to figure out how to do that. She was going to need a lot of aftercare and there was really no, you know, financial stability to do that. Um, so trying to figure out how I was going to do that. I was going, I flew back to New York for like 24 hours, basically to get some things knowing that I was going to be in Wisconsin and Illinois for months um, that at the very least. And we had this light hearted moment and um, yeah. So I, I was basically coming back to New York for a minute to pull up my socks and like get to work in taking care of my mother and the day I left, just hours after I left, um, and I'm going to preface this by saying most of the staff, and spe very specifically the nurses and very, very even more specifically the hospice nurses, were wonderfully kind and caring, compassionate people, and it's a very challenging job. And Did she but, immediately go to hospice? No, so she didn't go on to hospice until the last little less than a week of her life. Okay. Okay. But and we were a few days out of that, but I believe that was kind of a part of what um snowballed into a rapid decline was I left and um they could have asked me earlier that day when I had been there cuz I was there like around the clock. I was sleeping at the hospital. Mm -hmm. And um <clears throat> they asked my mom when no one was around to sign um a DNR. Hmm. And she was on a lot of medication. Um, she was on painkillers and dilated and things that make you have hallucinations. And um, in her mind, and I can see how this um, could be so, at the time she could still, she still was speaking. She was still clearly could converse with me. Um, at her mind, that was them believing that she wasn't going to make it. And so suddenly you're, you've been told that you're going to get discharged and get better. And suddenly you're told that, well, we don't, we're not quite sure we believe you're going to live. So we need you to sign this form. And so she panicked and I, you know, I got off the plane and I had, numerous messages from her and from her best friend and maybe one from a nurse because now my mom was now panicked um trying to explain the situation and her the fear in her voice and I basically turned around got back on an airplane and came back um without doing you know without even coming to do what I intended to do just because I couldn't have her be in a state of fear and by the time I got back, she hadn't slept, and she she couldn't sleep after that. She um, really struggled to rest, and there was just a lot of fear there. And very, we declined pretty quickly after that. I would say within by the end of that week, she could no longer talk to me, and. Um, by the middle of the following week, which was, the, I guess, week three, um, 
we we had been in a palliative care situation for a few days and when my mom was still kind of had her uh, ability to talk um, and then uh, very very swiftly we went to a hospice and we were in the hospital for hospice um, and yeah and she died four weeks to the day I brought her in um, she was peaceful and I was there and um, her best friend was there uh, when it happened and um, and even though I knew you know I at one point I was talking to her she's my mother is one of six siblings and I was talking to her brothers and sisters and people were should we come should we come should we come is it time is it time and I was trying my best to advise them as best I knew how I was offering what I had to get them to her side um and I don't I don't begrudge anybody this moment it's a very confusing time for everyone and we all have to handle it in our own way um but I couldn't tell them it was time because I needed to hold out hope and so I was going to like hope until the very last second so as much as I did advise them to come I couldn't be like yeah I think she's going to go mm -hmm. um I hear you even though I knew like you know I I, I knew I just couldn't. I just absolutely couldn't for my own survival. Um, and uh, even though I knew it was in a lot of ways the more surprising leaving of the room, um, my brothers came with some shock value to it, but, and they're both painful beyond. Uh, anything I would wish on anyone, but I something about my mother's um, came as more of a more of a shock. I think. Mm -hmm. Oh, they well, and it was you know, and and from what you're communicating, it was a continuation of your brother's death as well. Yeah. Right. So they do just. Yeah, the motion I'm imagining from what you've shared would just flow like a waterfall into the other yeah. um, person's story. I think so much of that, so much of the initial months of my brother's passing feel a bit more clear to me than kind of the middle of the year. Um, and then things become a little bit more clear to me in the, the kind of... It, very closely as it's in March, it very closely like aligns with the calendar year. So like the winter before my mom passed away um, is a bit more clear to me of what happened. Like the, the way our minds, the actual science behind the way our brains work and how we store memories um, is I, a big interest to me in grief because of what we can take with us um, and sometimes what gets left behind. And I think there's some active work we can do to keep from losing certain things um, mm. as we start to process our losses. Mm -hmm. um, but they, yeah, it, they'd all kind of float. And I, 
I, you know, it's hard to not have those. So I should also say we're a very tiny family. My mom raised my brother and I just herself. And while we do have other blood relatives, our family is very much the three of us. And it has always been the three of us. And um, so it's quite a, it's quite a, it's quite a hole there. Mm hmm. That gets back to your description when you first um, contacted me about how these losses totally transformed your life, changed your life. Yeah, I think, um, you know, loss is funny. Loss is a funny word. Um, I think grief and like, I think loss can be used really lightly sometimes. Mm-hmm. We lose a wallet. We lose our keys. Uh, we lose things that maybe we maybe hope for permanence with. But those things don't, like, cease to exist. Mm. Like, you, I hope to say permanently connected my keys. My keys don't cease to exist. I just can no longer find them. <laughs> or like a, more seriously, a, a relationship. Like uh, we've all had passing relationships in our lives, maybe friendships or work relationships or um, something we're passionate about that eventually it shifts and changes and it's no longer with us or for us and we move on from it. But it is not... God, it, we don't we don't have to ex- always accept its godness mm. like there we can still have a certain amount of lightness knowing it exists someplace and while I will make that argument that happens with death as well there is a definitely a finality that comes with mm-hmm. not having your people on the planet mm. um, there's a lot of <clears throat> I don't know. I hope this doesn't sound too um, out there, <laughs> but there's like a lot of weight that ha- is exists in life, right? Like our bodies have weight. And I think when we lose people that are very close to us, um, we, we, we take on the, the carrying of that loss and that death. Um, but we lose a weight. We lose the weight of their body and like they just, our energy and that trans understanding that transformation um, is really impactful. I think to understanding your surroundings and your place in the world and your, how you contribute to things I'm getting very tangential. I'm sorry. <laughs> Tell us what that looks like for you in these relationships. Well, I remember very, very, um, one of the things I remember very, very acutely with my brother is, um, oh, um, the, my, so my brother passed away. I was living in New York City, as I do, and my brother um, passed away in Connecticut, um, in New Haven. And um, he, I remember very desperately wanting to be with his body. And uh, my mom was in Wisconsin, 
and I needed to get my mom to the East Coast. And I like all the met, you know, I, I've done a lot of kind of like planning of events. And so like immediately I was like, I have to do these things. But like, it was very, very clearly it was very, um, I was like a wreck. Um, and all I wanted was to be with his body for, to know that whoever, you know, his body was at the morgue, that somebody knew somebody was coming for him, that he wasn't alone, that he had people who loved him and that he, uh, there was somebody coming for him. He did, I didn't want him to be alone. I was very fearful that he, um, whatever your beliefs are of the other side, that he got to the other side and was kind of like, oh shit, like, I didn't mean to do this. Or like, I was very worried he was kind of being stuck somewhere and he was going to have fear. And so um, I felt very desperate to be with him. And I couldn't, like, I, I didn't, I couldn't figure out exactly how to do it short of just drive up to New Haven and like bombard the morgue and insist on, on seeing that. And people were, I I remember saying it to a few people around me who like immediately kind of stepped in to like comfort me, um, that I couldn't do that, that I needed to wait and figure things out. And I just knew it was all that I wanted. And when I finally did get to see his body, um, had a, I asked for a viewing before he was cremated. That was just for our immediate, my mom, myself, um, his best friends and his two best friends and ex wife and our father. Um, and I, it was a very sterile kind of cold environment in a part of a, um, funeral home but not inside of the funeral home it was like a room adjacent to the funeral home and it was quite cold and he uh i don't know if this is a visual image i should paint for anybody but it was unpleasant let's say this and but i remember in that moment understanding the weight of a person's body versus the person themselves and like how much Mm -hmm. bigger we are than our body and how much space we actually take up with our actual energy and vibrance and our thrive and our our internal presence Mm -hmm. and that it my brother who always loomed large for me he's you know my older brother I always wanted to be like him and be around him and I other on the on this table in this environment he was so much smaller his physical person all of a sudden was much smaller and I realized oh my brother was as big as he was because of of his and his energy right his internal presence and um it just it really immediately changed how I I, I think I always had, you know, I grew up with certain understandings and beliefs about things. And um, I think there was a certain kind of East meets West philosophy that lived in my house as, as a child. And, um, you know, I grew up learning how to meditate and understanding certain kind of like whole practices for wellness. Um, 
and I, I think I had beliefs. I think I thought I knew kind of what I believed to know some semblance, some semblance of what gave me comfort of like what's here and now and what's after. And, um, you know, my loss really changed that belief system for me at first. Well, my birth, my brother at first, it changed that belief system for me. But, um, what I did feel confirmed in is like, oh, we are so much more than our bodies and uh, how we choose to, you know, move through life and work and what we choose to do, um, I think needs to have a better, like, a more cognizant, energetic component to it. Um, yeah, because we're not just our bodies. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And so that so Sounds that like really that. shifted in that mo like in, almost instantaneously in that moment. Yeah, yeah, that's that's all I was going to observe just then was yeah, feels like that. That's what you're saying that that moment really really shifted things for you in terms of how much the body is who we are. And it was pretty, I mean, a graphic moment. Like my mom was. Either, there are a lot of I remember a lot of screams in this year of my life mm -hmm. where my both mm -hmm. my own and my mom's and um yeah that was just a day where like the the nature of that particular type of loss mm -hmm. um was really defined for a lot of people um I will I think I I could say this, that so two of my brother's best friends were there and one of them is a recovering addict as well. And I, I can't help but hope in moments like this when you are, when you are so closely affected by that particular type of loss um, and when people around you, um, if you know somebody who's dealing with addiction or dealing with a loss from addiction, that it is very, um, it's very defining to witness what, when addiction goes that route, mm -hmm. what it can do to people. So, you know, I, I hope there are lessons out there for people who are supporting people through addiction and supporting people through loss from addiction. How did it affect his friend who was I mean, in recovery in that way? Did you did you feel like it affected the trajectory of his life then to see? I don't know if I could speak to that, but I I mean I know that he has done um I, he's you know, has been recovered for quite some time and was recovered before my brother passed away and um I know that it was always very important to my brother his recovery and that my brother took his recovery quite seriously. And I know that, um, that his care and concern, both, both the people who were there, all the people who were there, but his friends who were there in that, in that moment, um, that was so hard for my mom and I, um, and I know that they, we're definitely affected by it in a really down to the core way. 
And I know that they have done a very good job of kind of looking after me and checking in on me um, since my brothers passed away. And I think that, I mean, that means a lot to me because I know it also would mean a great deal to my brother. Mm. Um, I can't help but think that it has to be at the very least a, you know, a notch in their, in their process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, anybody's process that would, yeah, be with that, the moment of the, you know, these are real things that real moments in people's lives that are happening every day that you, you don't always, or you usually don't at all get to bear witness to. So yeah, I can imagine what it's meant for their living and their thoughts about death and dying and, 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 you know, your sweet brother and you all, there's, there's a connection there. Hmm. A friend of mine actually, um, maybe, maybe a year or so later, maybe the, maybe actually the, summer after my brother passed away time was a little blurry um reached out to me as a friend of mine who is actually also a recovering addict and we used to work together and he reached out to me he was a new father and he wanted me to meet his baby and we went and had a lovely lunch together and he very openly shared with me um how just knowing what our family was going through and how close he had been to my brother's scenario. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, he just shared with me how grateful he was for his life and that to still have it, to have his son. And uh, it was, it almost felt like, um, you know, all the, all the apologies and gratitude for life, that certainly he did not owe me. This is a friend of mine, but that anybody who's kind of survived that trajectory um, can offer for people who haven't survived that trajectory, if that is cohesive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So like for somebody who can't say those words anymore, um, it meant a lot to me. He had such gratitude for his life and not getting to that point and being able to see his son grow. And it's really beautiful. Mm -hmm. So how are you doing these days with your heart and your... (laughs) Well, I've actually, I find, um, you know, it's weird to say you're doing well. I think um, when, when people... For, you know, when you're going through the first year of Lost and you kind of like show up to something and you're smiling, people are like, you look like you're doing great. Oh, my mm-hmm. God. And you're like, oh, my God, I feel awful. <laughs> I'm smiling. So you're OK. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I, right. I think that still kind of lives in me a good deal. Um, you know, it's been uh, my brother passed away. Um, right before, well, not right before, he passed away five months before his 40th birthday. And his birthday is actually this Sunday. And, um, you know, it would, he'd be turning 44. 
And so, you know, it's been four years there, and I, I don't even know how it's been three years since my mother passed. It, things have been challenging. Um, but, you know, with everything, it comes and goes in waves, and I, it, um, it's always something I kind of carry around, and I think there are some days I'm better at um, carrying it than others. And there are some days that I can kind of do the act of work to, to participate in my grief and put it somewhere. So it gives it some structure and it gives it a place for me to rest it for a while. And I mm-hmm. think that's something that I can say now as I'm better at like resting the, the load of it uh, now, now than I was clearly the first two years. Um, what's it look like for you? The resting of the load, what actions are behind that or shifts are behind that? Well, in some ways it's doing, um, like something like this, like having a a more structured conversation about it where Mm -hmm. it gives me a place to share and speak to something that I know many people are going to experience sooner rather than later and hope that that offers some peace of mind to people um, because I think it's very lonely making. Mm -hmm. Um, It can be very isolating, which is so, you know, so irony therapy is on the fact that we all will experience it and many people have experienced it before you and I. Um, So I think making stuff out of it, I found um, writing and making work has really been helpful um, and being very open to talking and bearing witness for other people has been helpful. I'm not, you know, just like everybody else, I, there are situations where I'm better at it than others, but um, that has been my aim, I think. I think kind of early in the process of um, mourning my brother, I I found a little bit of writing um, and just kind of not, I, I was very afraid of feeling like a burden and I also really didn't like platitudes. And so, um, which also my mom, I, my mom was very resistant to get help in part because she was like very fearful of people offering her platitudes. And I was like, well, I understand that. Like people are going to do that because they're just desperate to say something and mm. they, they want to be of help and they have no idea how because they haven't had the experience and how would they know how to be helpful without the experience? And I, I don't want them to have the experience. So like wishing them to be more helpful is almost like wishing the experience. So I, I couldn't like separate those things, but, and my mom struggled to um, as well, but in a way more angry way than I was at first. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I found that, writing and kind of it needing a witness so like I could journal for myself and have no one read it but having being willing to put words out into space where people could read them should they choose to and Mm -hmm. could be supportive should they choose to um was a good way for me to start to create something that gave myself space to 
put my grief somewhere and then like get it out right like uh, again not to get wildly tangential but like disease is definitively caused by like us trapping things in our body and not like refusing to let them go right and so um I felt very determined to like put stuff somewhere so that I didn't constantly hold on to it um Mm. which was an you know again some days I did it better than others and that's still true um and then that just kind of grew over time to a different body of work. Um, and then I, I found um, the other part of learning is, and this is also learning how to be a good witness for other people. So I thought the people who were most, um, most comforting to me, and I think most people who experience grief or experience traumatic grief will tell you they probably lose a few friends during the process. Um, There are some people who can kind of sit with discomfort and other people's discomfort and there are people that is challenging for, and there could be a variety of reasons why that's challenging. And I don't begrudge people those reasons. That's their experience. And I'm okay with that. But there is a certain time where um, sometimes that's just like, you can't be in the room with that. Um, mm-hmm. And so my, my dear friends who were able to actually sit and like, and like be in like the full, you know, despair cry with me and like not tell me it was going to be okay. Um, were like were real saviors in that situation. And like, they were just really truly willing to witness um my pain and try to hold it for a little while. Um, so that was quite helpful. And uh, I don't know how I would have survived certain moments without that. And I think now having space um, is, and having kind of access to things that I have this, I have certain uh, both in my work and in my, my kind of creating things as an artist have these kind of little places where I can actually have be this for other people. Um, I, I think I've learned how to be a better witness for people and that feels Mm. important to me. And it, it feels important to me for my own sake. It feels important to me for the sake of the community I'm surrounded with. And I feel like it, it feels important to me to do on behalf of my mother and my brother. I think they were both, they both had the ability to be very powerful witnesses for other people, mm-hmm. probably more so than I was at the time of their passing. So, yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for opening up your beautiful, horrible stories. I mean, it's, it's that when you embrace death and dying with your heart and eyes wide open, it is, there is beauty in the horridness of the experience and the losing, the disappearance from the planet. I don't, so I, so I have a couple of friends who've 
uh, also all lost their mothers and we kind of created our own little circle and um, we all lost our, our mothers at different stages in our lives and at different, our mothers were all vastly different ages. And um, one of my friends says, you know, there's a lot of like, she believes there's a lot of um, beauty and kind of like a badge of honor to, to have kind of like survived the loss of it, which I, I can, you know, when she first kind of said it to me, I was kind of like, oh, I, I don't feel that way. I don't, I don't, I respect that you feel that way, but I just am not there yet. I don't believe I'll be there. And I, I don't, I'm not somebody who believes that like all things happen for a reason. Like for me, that's not my truth. I think some things are just horrible, but I do think that there are collateral learnings that can be happened um, around those things that happen to our, in our lives that we often have that we feel are out of our control. And I think that is something that's really important to take away when you're dealing with anything that's really painful and anything that needs and requires a certain amount of letting go is that, um, you can validate your feelings and say, this is really hard and it's okay that it's hard and it might not ever be easy. And what can also exist alongside of that is that like bees come to flowers and there's beauty out our window and that you will inevitably learn something about your deepest self and about energy and about just the way, uh, the weight and value of life. Mm. And I think that collateral learning is really transforming. And it's unfortunate that it comes at often such a cost. Yes. And I think that's why people like you are doing such amazing work because it's the sharing of that could be really helpful if it is in the right hands at the right moment. Mm. Thank you. And yes, I agree. I agree. And I think many of us would be more prepared. And that's why I say the listening to these conversations can make you a better human, you know, not to be grandiose about this particular podcast, but just that ability to sit for a long period of time, listening to someone's deep, deep story and emotion and heartstrings and what you learn from that and how you might apply that to your life now. Or I've had so many people come circle back around and say, you know, hearing this story helped me so much when this happened that they didn't know was going to happen beforehand. So yeah, that's, that's then. And thank you. Thank you for helping us. But I, but before we close, I would love for you to share with our listeners, where they can find you and what, what, what the gist of your work is yeah. surrounding loss and grief right now, or death and grief, however we want to word it. Yeah. Language, language, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, also like loss is a perfectly acceptable word. Um, it is, they're all words. We can use them all. Um, I think that, I think, yeah, it's more about just the kind of finality of it. Um, and mm. is it final? I don't think it's really final. Like, I don't know. I could probably talk to my brother in like a few minutes. I don't know. Um, but 
I think, uh, okay, so where do you find me? Wait, stop, stop right now. I have to ask you, since you said that, have you had any sense of connection with people, any signs, anything like that? I've had some really profound moments of like, oh, there's no way that could have possibly happened unless this was my person. They're pretty interesting. And then I like, uh, I feel like two of them came at a time where they were quite heavy. And, um, but like, even just like the other day, I was like biking down the street and I had like a giggle and I was like, oh, this is like me and my brother like laughing. And that felt really refreshing, actually, because most of, so much of this is heavy loaded work, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but we were like totally laughing at like somebody on a unicycle the other day. It was pretty funny. Um, I feel like I yeah. like to ask that question because, yeah. you know, I talk about death being kept in the closet, but connection with, with your loved one after they die is really a conversation kept in the closet too, because oh, yeah, people are afraid that others are going to think, you know, there's something wackadoo when in actuality, I like to highlight here that, you know, most people, if not all that I ask have experienced something that they're pretty darn sure is a direct connection to that energy. I think, I feel like mine are like pretty undeniable. And I, I would say that like where I came from a family who also just kind of believes that that exists, like, Mm -hmm. you know, um, we believe I grew up just kind of believing that the kind of veil between things is a little bit more thin than we would deem it so on a day to day basis. But, um, uh, you know, when my brother first passed away and my mom, not too long after my brother first passed, my mom had dreams and he was her in her dreams and I was wildly jealous. Like I wanted to have that so much and well actually if I can I'll go back a little step further when my brother at my brother's uh we had a couple of weeks for my brother and my father had a week for him and I was driving back from it with my um, boyfriend at the time and my mother in the car and I I've heard this in hindsight because I did a little research about it after, but like when you're in a period of um, profound loss or like the trauma period that surrounds the immediacy of losing someone um, and death that you can have hallucinations. And I didn't realize that. I don't know if that's exactly what happened or not, but that is, is maybe what it felt like a little bit. Um, But we were just driving back and I just looked out the car window and I fully felt that I saw my brother standing in like some tall bush on the side of the road, like bush, like kind of grasses, bush type stuff on the side of the road, kind of blowing. And we were driving down the Hudson, you know, so uh, it's kind of a beautiful part of it, you know, upstate New York coming back. And um, I just remember him trying to make me laugh. Because, I mean, just of everything I'd already witnessed and how I really had to be the one to organize everything for him. And that, like, uh, I was having a wake of my own in my home for him after 
uh, that following Wednesday. And I just remember him being very present in that moment. And I mean, I saw him as clear as day. Um, and that was the first. And then I didn't have dreams about him for a long time. And then I finally had uh, one or two dreams about him and he couldn't talk to me. And he couldn't say anything. And um, I felt like there was shame there and there was us just being alongside of each other. And then um, the same thing kind of happened when my mom passed. Uh, I didn't have the, I was with her when she passed. So the difference of watching somebody transition from being here to being gone is different, which I actually learned a little bit about from uh, uh, how that actually looks and comes to pass through a, a cat of mine. Um, but which I was very grateful for having that lesson ahead of time. Um, and then um, it took a while for me to have dreams about my mom, and the same kind of thing happened where she couldn't talk to me, and it was always me trying to kind of protect her. And then, like, maybe six months or so after my mom passed away, um, my relationship at the time, I'd been in a very long-term relationship with somebody who, I care about very much, but um, we needed to separate. And I was, I we'd been living together for years, and I needed to um, move out. And I was the last day I was spending in my old apartment as I shifted my life into my new apartment. And um, I received an email. So my mom had for a while worked as a kind of a a counselor, kind of a psychic um, for people. She had a lot of different jobs and careers in her life, and that was what she was doing towards the end of her life. And a client of hers reached out to me and had apparently been trying to track me down for like six months. And she kept having emails get bounced back to her. It was like from an old newsletter. She had figured out, you know, she knew my mom had a daughter and da, da, da. And she knew my brother had passed away. And um, she found that my mom had passed away through um, like a you caring page that I had created early on uh, in my mom's hospital stay. And she um, took it in that moment to send me a piece of writing that my mom had sent and she said I don't know why but I just know that I have to get this letter to you essentially and I I hope that it serves you some peace and in this letter that my mom sent um was a, a poem basically about letting go and learning how to it's this letting go is something that happens and it just happens. It happens in a moment. There's no fanfare. There are no witnesses. You just know it when it happens. And I was, I mean, I was holding on to this thing so tight and all I wanted to do was talk to my mom. And then there it was. Hmm. So it was really a powerful moment. And then subsequently, um, Months later, the December after that year, I think in 2000, actually 2019, um, a friend of mine who lives down like the street from me received a letter addressed, a bank letter addressed to my brother, to her address. 
out of nowhere. And so she was a little worried to like tell me and she reached out to another friend of mine and that friend who had also experienced loss was like, oh no, you tell her right away. And so she got in touch with me and she said, hey, um, this is weird, but this letter came to my mailbox and it's addressed to your brother. And so my initial instinct was like, we work for the same company. It must be some sort of scam. And then I looked further into it and I found out um, during like a period in like, I don't know, 12 years prior to my brother's passing, he had lived in the apartment downstairs from her. Mm. And the mailman just happened to put the mail in the wrong box and had her boyfriend come home. He wouldn't have thought anything of it. He wouldn't have recognized the name. But she happened to come home. She happened to get mail that was in the wrong box. And it happened to be addressed to my brother. And at the time, I was also having a really hard go at things. Uh, 2018 was a pretty dark year for me. And um, I think we both had, we were both just like floored. I mean, I was on like a little like, you know, uh, what is it like undercover agent journey trying to figure out how the mail got there and like tracking down like this old record of him living there and talking to a few old friends of his to find out when and just the the immediacy of how quickly I was able to make all those connections was pretty interesting in itself but it just felt like he found the person who was literally the closest to me like physically the closest most available person to give me, come give me a hug because I was Mm. having like a rough day. Mm. And I just don't think there is any other ways to explain those things. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that there are pieces of mail because I went on to create your faithful reader, which is all based off of letters. So I wish I a little bit about that as we wrap. Yeah. I, I actually will know how to find you and what was, it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this earlier today when uh, I was kind of getting ready to speak with about how, you know, your faithful reader is a kind of an experiential theater performance um, that uses written word letters of um, people who want to submit letters about basically anything. Um, it could be to a person, to an inanimate object, to uh, the color blue. It can be how you seem fit, but what comes out of those letters. And then they're performed as monologues and theater pieces and dance pieces. And um, they, uh, it was inspired because of, um, I used to exchange letters with my mom. And I was really missing exchanging those letters. And so in a moment of being, uh, well, I had been gifted in, um, a grant to make some work and I was trying to figure out what to do. And I wasn't exactly sure what um, life had in store for me as a performer. And basically I put that into the world. And like the next day I was gifted this grant out of nowhere. And so I was trying to figure out what to do. And I was really missing exchanging these letters with my mom. And so in a moment of being a bit selfish, I reached out to my artist writing community and said, Hey, uh, well, you send me letters, but like actually mail me letters. I'd really like to get some good mail. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so people did. um, And really surprisingly so. And people shared all sorts of wonderful 
parts of themselves, things that they needed to share. Um, a lot of those letters were about loss of some variety. Um, they were about things, the fears that live inside of people, things that they are working through. Um, and I was really honored to be trusted with all of that work because uh, the one kind of caveat I sent to everyone in like enticing them into the project was that like it has to be something they're willing to let go and know that it'll be out in the world and it might change shape and it could be turned into dance and it could be turned into all sorts of different things. And people did. They really were kind enough and generous enough in their energy and their talent and spirit to share their work with me and trust me with it. Um, and it was quite a catharsis, I think, for many of us. Um, and even the folks, so a lot of my writers actually ended up being also performers in the show, not of their own work, but of other people's work. And then also people who didn't write performed as just a whole group of different kind of assimilated artists. And um, so for the folks who wrote letters but didn't weren't actually in the show, I think it was very interesting for a, a lot of people gave the feedback that it was very interesting to see and hear their feelings and words on other people and how much of a letting go that was to have someone else hold their experience for them. Um, I know that was true of my own work, um, writing a letter about, very specifically a letter about grief. I hadn't quite been explored the anger side of grief. And then one day the anger side of grief came pouring out and I was, um, it was very scary to share it, but then it was also really, um, very talented, talented actress, um, got to deliver this piece of work and having someone else hold it for you for a little while is really meaningful and uh, kind of gives it space to exist and be remembered in a way that you don't have to do all of the all of the burden it's not a burden to hold space for your loved ones so I don't want that to be what it sounds like but it can be you know it can be moments where being um, sadness is is tiring, right? Mm -hmm. So, so where can our listeners find more about your project? Yeah, so if you go to yourfaithfulreader.com, um, there's a website there that you can learn more about the project um, and upcoming opportunities to contribute if you're interested in being a writer or sharing a letter. Um, you can also find us on Instagram, which is also just your faithful reader. And then I myself uh, work in fitness and wellness and um, share a lot of my journey um, as, as the physiological uh, changes of wellness and grief kind of coincide. And I share a lot of that on my personal um, F wellness fitness Instagram, which is move to live now. And we will note all of these in our program notes for people that um, want to refer and haven't jotted this down. So. Yeah. Well, Miriam, I want to thank you so much yeah, for being with you. us today and sharing this part of your life with us. I mean, I, it's really touched me and I've learned a lot listening. So I can't thank you enough. Thank you. I, I apologize for being a bit of a scattered thinker. I <laughs> 
but I, I know that that's also kind of how grief feels. So I hope I don't that think it... it'll feel scattered to our listeners. <laughs> I, 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 I tracked right with you and I appreciated yeah. all you covered a lot and it was um, good ground. Good. Mm, thank you. Ground. Well, I really yeah, appreciate the could... opportunity. So thank you very much. Oh, it was my pleasure. You take good care. You too. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us today. We'd love for you to get further connected with our project. You can find the links in the podcast information. You can also find the Death Dialogues Project on Facebook, on Instagram, and at www.deathdialogues.net. Take good care and see you next time.